Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places. To no change, change without, without struggle. struggle. No, no one, one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. WORT 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to a public affair. I am STD Noor, and now we are not going to talk today about Queen Elizabeth II. We might next week, I, I'm considering that, um, talking possibly about the uh, brutal colonialism that existed still under her reign, or possibly about the, the, the mysterious thing of so many people loving... Um, these extremely wealthy people who really have done nothing for them. I these are both of these are things that I might want to explore. But um, want to let you know that I'm actually hosting Pan Africa tomorrow, and I will be playing some um, music from uh, the struggle against British colonialism before um, it was finally ended in um, Africa and the Caribbean. I also want to send a quick um, wishes for um, recovery to Jill Ferguson, our um, guest last week who uh, was in a uh, water protectors concert and had a heart attack. And uh, she is okay, I think, um, relatively speaking. Um, anyway, Jill, if you're listening, we um, send you um, wishes for quick recovery and to continue your good work of uh, protecting the water. And we will uh, still be talking about water today. Um, We'll be talking about a brand new book, The Profits of Distrust, Citizen Consumers, Drinking Water, and the Crisis of Confidence in American Government uh, by Theod by um, Ma Professor Manuel Teodoro, Samantha Zulki, and David Switzer. And we have Professor Manuel Teodoro with us. He works at the intersection of politics, public policy, and public management. His research focuses mainly on U.S. environmental policy and implementation, including empirical analysis. He's associate professor at the Robert M. La Follett School of Public Affairs right here at the University city of Wisconsin Madison and uh, hello Manny thank you for joining us today thanks Esty it's great to be with you and uh, you just told us that you yourself have not received the book yet but I have so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right I guess the uh, chef always has to eat last uh, yeah and I assume you know what you wrote about even if you don't have the book That's right. <laughs> so the, the the electronic manuscript. Yeah. Okay. So so you know what's in the book. <laughs> um, I want to start with the really first line of the preface, in which you, which you say, "Fittingly, this book was written in the midst of a pandemic." What's fitting about that? What's the connection between pandemic and water? Yeah, I think the the connection really comes not so much with water, but with trust in government and trust in the institutions of the state. One of the really striking things that emerged as the pandemic emerged was the extraordinary level of distrust that so many Americans had in uh, government's response to the pandemic. People refusing a vaccine. First of all, vaccines not available at first, that you have people Uh, either accepting or not accepting things like school closures and public space closures and mask mandates and so on and so forth. And a lot of that was cast not in scientific terms, like I'm not sure about the science of whether this is a, a good way to prevent uh, disease communi communication or not, but it was cast in terms of I don't trust the government. I don't trust my community government, my state government, 
uh, the federal government. It was very much cast in terms of how the government was responding to the pandemic and whether people believed in the institution of government itself. And I think Americans have a lot of good reasons not to trust government. Uh, maybe even so when the government is, um, when the person heading the government is um, uh, Donald Trump, but even when it's someone else, it is. would you agree with me on that? Sure, but I think the phenomena that we're talking about really transcends any individual leader or an, even any individual uh, party. Our, our, our main claims in this book have to do with competence in providing for basic services. You know, the whole core of liberal democratic theory is the idea that governments get their legitimacy not from uh, you know, not not from sort of divine divinely ordained monarchy, <laughs> since we're on the looking at the passing of, of the crown over in the UK that we, but, but, but our government gets its legitimacy by taking care of the basic needs of its people and public health is about as basic as you get. Our main claim in this book is that water is as basic as you get. And so the legitimacy of government is tied to providing for those basic needs and people aren't stupid. People aren't crazy if they don't trust an institution that's not providing for their basic needs. That's, just that's at the core of our whole concept of, of what government is supposed to be. Yeah. So so there is a reason or there are reasons for people to be distrustful. And these reasons have to do with their experiences. That's right. That's right. If, if people uh, directly experience failures of, of government in these very important basic ways, or if they observe failures and I can identify with those failures, then then they have reasons to distrust. You know, if, if I if I experience um, failed in our in our book, if you experience a, a significant tap water failure, of course that's going to change the way you look at the institutions that are responsible for delivering that service and regulating that service. So yeah, it's it's about that experience, but it's also about about what I observe. Yeah. So I want to start by asking you about something you haven't written about in the book because you couldn't. It's very recent and I'm sure you have given it some thought. Jackson, Mississippi and what's going on there. Talk about that in the context of your book or really in any context. Yeah, it's fitting and sad that the book was published the same week that the Jackson, uh, the city of Jackson, Mississippi, lost its tap water system entirely, tap water service entirely, uh, emergency declaration. Of course, the parallels between Jackson and Flint, Michigan are not hard to see. In both cases, you have a majority black central city, uh, majority democratic politicians, uh, it's situated in a state, excuse me, in a, in a metro area that's majority white, with with a majority Republican politicians, and so you have these these sort of conflicts on all of those levels. But beyond the partisanship, what you've got here is is a basic service failure, and I think quite rightly the people of Jackson, Mississippi, are questioning the legitimacy of both city and state governments that are responsible for their care. Look. The Jackson water crisis didn't just happen this past two weeks. That has been a crisis decades in the making. And uh, it's not a surprise to anyone who's been paying attention. Heck, they had a, a significant uh, tap water failure just a year ago, about a year and a half ago during uh, a cold snap that caused uh, service interruptions in that city. And a year later, the, the system is still fragile, it's still weak, and, and state and city officials have done very little to address it. So, of course, the people of Jackson are suspicious and they've, they've lost faith in, uh, in their system. I think the more interesting thing that comes out of our book and that we're seeing play out in front of us right now is that the failure in Jackson has changed people's relationship with tap water everywhere across the country. I think Americans everywhere are look, turning on that tap in the morning and thinking differently about the liquid that's flowing out and asking themselves, okay, is this something that I trust? Should I still be drinking tap water? How, how, is, how good or bad is, is my local government, my state regulators? Uh, you know, it, I think that the, one of the really 
surprising insights that came out of our research in this book is that distrust is contagious. Failure anywhere causes distrust everywhere. And we're living in this moment where we're all instantaneously connected. A disaster happens in the ja in Jackson, Mississippi. We all know about it very, very quickly. And it changes the way we perceive our own experiences as well as those of the people of Jackson. And of course, it follows the um, huge crisis of Flint, Michigan, which you um, have mentioned. We talked about it when it happened. We talked about it um, later on the show. And it still is going on. It hasn't really been solved. And the people responsible for it have uh, gone to court. But um, to the best of my knowledge, none of them is in prison or, you know, really paying uh, in any way for um, their negligence. Remind us, if you will, what happened in Flint. And, um, of course, your book talks about that. And, um, yeah, tell us, expand a little more on what you have learned from Flint. Sure. Well, the, the, the very quick, very oversimplified summary of what happened in Flint is that the city government lost control of its own public policies writ large because of a financial crisis. And the state government effectively took over the city for a period of time in which a, a state appointed official was in charge of virtually every policy made in Flint. One of the policies that changed during that period of time was source water. As a part of a financial move, uh, the city changed its source water from one to another, and that change in source water uh, changed the chemical composition of, uh, of the water that was flowing out into the distribution system. That change in chemical uh, composition caused lead to leach from uh, service lines in people's homes and, and in the distribution system, and that caused lead contamination for uh, in the drinking water supply. Of course, lead, terrible contaminant, causes all kinds of different problems. And it was uh, that, that crisis, uh, you know, caught the public's imagination nationwide. Our research and other research by other researchers found that drinking, uh, drinking water behavior across the country changed, uh, not just in Flint where you'd expect it, but bottled water sales went up across the country, places that were hundreds of miles from Flint uh, that had no experience of a tap water failure like that. So the, the, the thing that came out to us from from our study and then again looking at other people's research is the way that 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 tap water failure is contagious right the, the behavioral effects are contagious and so people are changing their behaviors even if they haven't directly experienced a failure i, I suspect we're going to see the same thing in jackson and maybe the most fascinating thing is people respond not so much in terms of geographic proximity but rather social proximity. Mm -hmm. And if you'll indulge me for a second, I'd like to talk a little bit of what, what, I, what I mean by that. Yes, please. Yeah, it's, it's not my geographic proximity to Flint. Uh, you know, you, drinking water systems across the country, they get their source water from many, many different places. It tends to be very, very localized. You get water from your local well or maybe from a lake or a river that's nearby. So there'd be no reason for me living in Madison, Wisconsin, to worry that my water is contaminated because of something that happened hundreds of miles away in Flint. But behaviorally, we see people's, uh, people's response to drinking water failures in Flint and elsewhere uh, happen not by geographic proximity, but rather by social similarity. So it's folks who share social and uh, sort of racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic characteristics in common who will respond. So if, if folks uh, look at, at Flint, Michigan, they look at Jackson, Mississippi, and they say, gosh, here is a city that's predominantly black. It's a city with, especially in Flint's case, with a very low socioeconomic status, high poverty rates. People across the country, if you share some of those social characteristics, you're going to identify with the victims of the Flint water crisis. And those folks are going to respond by changing their drinking water behavior, changing their relationship with tap water. And, and we, we trace out a lot of that stuff in the book in, in, in ways that are that are fascinating. It's it's the, the the vector of distrust in tap water turns out to be social 
much more than geographic space or or actual contamination in the water. So what you're saying is that um, uh, black people and low-income people who um, identify with the victims in both of these cases are more likely to switch to bottled water even if they live miles and miles and thousands of miles away than... um, white middle class or wealthy people yeah that that's right and and not just black folks but we especially see this the same kind of response among hispanic uh, americans we it very much flows to to racial and ethnic minorities that's why i use the term vector of distrust it's it's the social characteristics and the way that people respond Mm -hmm. and commercial you know the commercial firms that sell bottled water know that they they profit from that distrust hence the title of the book they they uh they in many cases deliberately market to uh, those those racial and ethnic minority populations mm-hmm. so i want to go again um a little beyond what your uh book is about and talk again back about jackson for example because one thing we've been hearing on the news is that I don't know the number, but some huge number of bottles have been um, handed to um, the people affected, which when I think about it, bottled water is, I think, to a large degree, or to some degree anyway, um, responsible for, um, for climate change. And uh, we also see plastic everywhere, right? We see it in Antarctica. We see it in the greatest depths of the ocean. And so here we're adding to the pollution of our suffering planet. And um, when you add to that that a lot of people are starting to drink bottled water because of each of these um terrible situations we are adding to a vicious cycle aren't we absolutely no we we other folks have have plowed that soil so we don't spend a lot of time in the book talking about the ecological impacts of bottled water but there's no question it's terrible the 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 carbon footprint alone let, let before we even talk about the plastic in order to create bottled water to just make the bottles put the water into the bottle, put it onto a truck, send it to a, a supermarket and have it sit there. You know, you, you're, you're expending a tremendous amount of energy at each step of that process. So the carbon footprint of a gallon of bottled water is enormous compared to a gallon of tap water. And then absolutely, you, we've got a, a disposal problem with that plastic. You know, the, the plastics are ubiquitous. And every time, every time somebody drinks that, that bottle of water, some of that's gonna get recycled. That takes energy, uh, but there's a good amount of that that bottle, uh, a good number of those bottles that are just going to end up in landfills or, or tossed away as, as uh, litter, and we, we see it everywhere. Um, it, it, bottled water has become ubiquitous. Those those of us who have been around, have been adults for a good long time, remember when there was a time before bottle when bottled water was kind of a novelty. I remember the first time seeing this, like, what the heck is this? Why why? Why would I pay to have a bottle that is effectively full of tap water? Right? It, it's it's a but <laughs> the, the kind of distrust that's grown up around tap water is one of the major contributors to, to the growth of that industry. And yeah, the ecological impacts are terrible. Yeah, my uh, guest is Professor Manuel Teodoro Mani. The Uh, We're talking about the book that he has written with Samantha Zuki and uh, David Switzer, The Profits of Distrust, Citizen Consumers, Drinking Water, and the Crisis of Confidence in American Government. You're welcome to join us if you haven't called in the past seven days at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also join us on social media at work talk on Twitter or a public affair on Facebook. So uh, back to your book, though, uh, Manny, though, I, you know, when you said the first time that you saw water in battle and thought, what the heck that what what the heck is that? Um, 
I think puts it so well because, uh, among other things, the water in the bottle is not necessarily any better than the water from your tap, is it? No, that's exactly right. Uh, for much of its history, uh, the bottled water industry was effectively entirely unregulated. The, in the United States, the main law governing tap water quality is called the Safe Drinking Water Act. It was passed in 1974, and it sets a number of chemical and biological contaminant standards and treatment technique rules. It's a, it's a very technocratic, detailed law, but it only applied to tap water. Bottled water was, it doesn't fall under the Safe Drinking Water Act. Now, starting about 10 or 12 years ago, Congress changed the law so that bottled water is now regulated by the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, as a food. So it's, it's regulated as a packaged food. It's a very different kind of law. Um, one of the things that I think is fascinating about the difference between tap water and bottled water, we know about tap water failures in part because of public reporting requirements. You know, every one of us receives a annual uh, water quality consumer confidence report from our local utility. If you get if you get tap water service at home, you, you get one of these reports every year. And then researchers like me can look at the data and look for communities that have better or worse tap water performance. And happily, most of them are pretty good. Um, but that kind of data transparency doesn't exist for the bottled water industry. The, the testing regime is, is not the same. Uh, the public reporting requirements are certainly not the same. Uh, so for much of their history, bottled water, bo the bottled water industry was uh, uh, existed in a regulatory vacuum. Then when you look at the kiosks, those sort of vending machines you see in supermarkets or, or in other parts of the country, they're out on the street. Those are largely unregulated. So we don't have much sense of, of the quality of that water. When it's been subject to rigorous testing, bottled water frequently fails. Uh, the, the water quality standards we accept expect of, of tap water. And then in blind taste tests, consumers often can't tell the difference. So it, it's this very qualitatively similar, possibly worse product, and people are willing to pay 35 to 200 times more on, on a unit cost basis for this same thing. And SD, the craziest thing of all, in any other, area of the economy, we would think of bottled water as a kind of luxury product because it's so much more expensive. But the crazy thing is in America, bottled water consumption is inversely related to income. Wealthier people tend to drink tap water. Middle-class people tend to drink tap water and it's lower socioeconomic status folks who tend to drink bottled water or, or these sort of kiosk sources that are so much more expensive. So it actually contributes to our problems with, with affordability and poverty as well. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you two questions um, together. First of all, if you can explain what water kiosks are, because the only one I'm aware of is the one at the COP where I know they do uh, put the water through all kinds of processes and I trust that it is better water, but I don't think that's what you're talking about. And right. secondly, why is it that low-income people are so likely to spend way too much of their lower income on bottled water? Yeah, you know, the, the, I'm answering your first question is, is kind of fun because it takes me back to the origins of this book. I started this project with Samantha Zilke. Uh, we didn't intend to write a book about trust and government. Mm -hmm. We intended to write a book about water kiosks, which I had never seen before. So one of the fun things when you move into a new community is you notice things that, that people who lived there for a long time don't notice. Uh, I had just moved to Texas back in 2013, I had lived in other parts of the country. I moved to Texas and I saw these freestanding vending machines. Now in Texas, the weather's pretty warm most of the time, so you can sell water outdoors. We, we really couldn't do that here in Wisconsin. Everything would freeze and, and <laughs> it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't work very well. But in Texas, all over the state, there are these, uh, these, these vending machines, uh, the kiosks, where people drive up and they bring a, a great big gallon or a five gallon jug usually or two or a five gallon jug 
and you put money in the vending machine or you swipe your credit card and then water comes out and people will put that in their car or their truck and, and they'll drive away. I had never seen anything like that before. I didn't know what they were. And I, I went to a, a lecture by a geographer there called Wendy Jepson, and, and she was talking about these kiosks in the South Rio Grande Valley of Texas, which does has, have some many communities with no tap water service at all, mm-hmm. and some communities with very, very poor quality tap water. So when she gave this talk about folks substituting these private vending machines because of failures of tap water, that made sense to me. I, I thought, okay, Professor Jepson, I get this. What I didn't get is when I'm driving around the city of Houston, Texas, which has an excellent tap water system, I still see these kiosks everywhere and they don't seem to be randomly distributed. Not only do I see them everywhere, they seem to be in the neighborhoods with the sort of the poorer neighborhoods. They tend to be in the low income neighborhoods. And that struck me as strange because the kiosk water costs 35 cents a gallon. The city of Houston's water costs a penny a gallon. So why am I seeing these things in the low-income neighborhoods? And Samantha Zulke came along. She has a background in geography. She was a new graduate student. I said, Sam, let's look at these things. Go map them, and let, let's figure out what's going on with these. And it was that led us down the road to noticing that, it's not my imagination, they really are in low-income neighborhoods. They really are in predominantly Hispanic neighborhoods, especially in Texas, California, Colorado, Arizona. And... Uh, peeling back that onion brought us to this point where the why are low-income folks buying bottled water or in this case kiosk water it has everything to do with trust in tap water and that tap water has everything to do with trust in government and that that's where things came full circle we were in conversation with david switzer who was doing some study on bottled water consumption and he found people who distrust government tend to drink bottled water that was the aha moment for us. Oh my goodness, low-income folks, non-white folks tend to distrust government for good reason. And that is reflected in part in their consumer behavior, even in places where the tap water quality is pretty good. That, that's, that's a long-winded answer, but I, but I think that, that gets at why, why low-income folks, the folks who can least afford the luxury product tend to spend the money for it, it's, it's what economists call defensive spending. It's, it's spending on something because I believe that the alternative will hurt me. Mm-hmm. So when I was in El Salvador, one thing that really surprised me was when I ate in restaurants, the food came in plates that were lined with uh, plastic lining, you know, like saran wrap kind of thing. And um, I, I couldn't understand it, but uh, when I mentioned that to my daughter, she actually had an interesting um, thought that that is because the water there is not good enough. And so rather than putting the food on something that was washed in bad water, um, they put this saran wrap, which again, you know, adds to all our environmental troubles and so on, especially in a place like El Salvador. But uh, could that be why, and of course El Salvador is just one small country in Latin America, but might that, might that be part of the reason why you found that um, specifically uh, Latino people are, um, are using the water from these kiosks? Yes, of course. Of course, some of that is, uh, if you want to say, imported behavior. Um, mm-hmm. Behavior that, that immigrated to the United States with the people. Uh, look, it's, it's, it, it, in some ways is exactly consistent with the the argument that we advance in the book. The difference is that folks who are coming from the developing world, and by the way, it's not just Latin America, people who come from sub-Saharan Africa, who come from vast swaths of Asia, also come from places where tap water is not reliable, and they bring the same kind of adaptive behavior they they bring to the United States when they they come here as well. Um, So, that is a similar kind of rational response that people learned because they couldn't trust the local institutions where they grew up to, to provide them with a quality basic service. And so they sort of assume that it's the same elsewhere. 
The fascinating thing is that we see the similar behaviors, though, sort of passed on over generations. So it's not just the person who immigrated to the United States, but it's maybe their children, maybe their grandchildren continue to continue to use bottled water, uh, kiosk water sources, even though they've grown up in a, in a context where they can and, and in most cases should expect better. We also, again, we see this behavior among uh, Black African-Americans who are who lived in the United States for generations, but we still see the similar kind of distrust-driven behavior. That's very much not an immigrant story. That's that's a story of political marginalization. That That's sort of our, our main claim. Look, um, African-Americans in the United States have good reasons not to trust the institutions of government. Uh, they... You know, I'll, I'll, I'll take it a step further, you know, American Indians, you know, the Native American community, if there's anyone who has a right to question the benevolence of government, you know, this is the group of people who do. And mm -hmm. it, it should not surprise us that some of the worst tap water quality in the United States is on, uh, on reservation lands. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, it, 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 this behavior is rational. We don't think anyone's crazy. We don't think anyone's stupid. Uh, we think folks are behaving rationally in response to what they've seen and what they've experienced. Uh, and the only way out of that, the only way to solve uh, solve these problems uh, is for the state, uh, for the institutions of government to provide for those basic services, do it for a long period of time, do it equitably, do it openly. And then over time, we, we think that you can rebuild trust. Yeah. Well, so Richelle, our um, producer and today also our engineer, um, let us know she, that she grew up in rural Michigan and her parents wouldn't let them drink tap water because they had heard that the well was adjacent to a farm that used pesticides. And um, I've been in the same situation. I lived out in the country not far from here, but there were definitely farms around us that were using pesticides. And we, at the time, installed a whole system of water purification in the house so that we wouldn't have to drive for many miles and get bottled water wh whose water was questionable but so like Rachel says it took me a while she says um, to adjust to drinking from the tap when I moved out so uh, Rachel is white um, I I don't know I don't know the um, economic state of her uh, parents working class she says but you do talk also about because one thing that um, I was thinking about as I was uh, reading through your book is um, that there's, of course, poor white people. And um, especially as we see nowadays, it is white people who are most vocal in voicing distrust in government. So what do we know about these communities? And I know you looked into a community like that in Appalachia. Yeah, we did. Um, and what we have, a, we have a chapter called Geographies of Alienation. And, and one of the one of the cases we looked at in that in that chapter uh, is, is Appalachia. This is a, a region of the United States that is predominantly white, um, but has been predominantly poor and working class for a long period of time, very high levels of poverty, very high levels of unemployment, drug use, any other social pathology you, you want to talk about, there's a lot of it going on in this region of the country. Uh, the, historically, the economy there has been based on natural resource extraction that's left, that's resulted in a lot of the wealth of that region leaving that region uh, and leaving the, the, the inhabitants of that region uh, impoverished. And we see very similar behaviors there. Tap water quality in in parts of Appalachia really is uh, is really very poor, um, but there are places where it's good. And still, even in places in that region where tap water quality is reliable, we see uh, poor white folks across that region respond by drinking bottled water or even in more extreme circumstances, people will drink from natural uh, water sources there are roadside springs where people will go fill up their bottle instead of a kiosk like in Houston, Texas. They'll go to a roadside spring where someone has stuck a, a pipe in the ground and there's water flowing out of it, and they'll just go fill up their water there. The water could be 
contaminated with all kinds of biological contaminants, the kinds of things that will make you sick and die very quickly. But folks will do that. And to, to us, that, that's an enormous signal of distrust. I would rather go fill my jug from a random pipe at the side of the road than trust the water that's supposed to be regulated by the state of Kentucky or West Virginia. What an indictment of trust in government. People are just willing to, to, to trust this, this source that's just sitting by the roadside uh, instead of the government-regulated product. So it is certainly not exclusively a story of racial or ethnic minorities. We see that predominantly across the country. It's really a story of, of political alienation. And there's nothing specifically left-right ideologically about that. There are people on the political left, there are people on the political right who distrust government. And so it, it doesn't break cleanly along Republican Democratic lines. This is about trust in institutions. And there are people uh, everywhere on that spectrum who have good reasons to distrust the institutions of government. Um, and, and, and it's because of these, these uh, basic service failures where they, they can identify with these failures that occur uh, that it, cause, it shakes their faith in, in the institutions of democracy. Mm-hmm. And and you make, um, I, I think, a direct line in the book between um, water service and uh, participation in um, the democratic process. Can, can you explain that? Sure. Yeah, there, there's, uh, there's a, a, a logic to it, and, and then there's, there's the data analysis. Just in terms of the data... People who drink bottled water or what I'll say commercial water, so bottled water, kiosk water, not tap water. Uh, Folks who drink commercial water are less likely to vote. They're less likely to go to public meetings. They're less likely to attend protest or demonstration, less likely to write their uh, elected officials or, or contact their elected officials. In short, they are less likely to participate in civic life writ large. Tap water drinkers are more likely to do all of those things. So you have tap water drinkers who are more politically active, uh, commercial water drinkers who are less politically active. And that those findings hold even after you adjust for race and socioeconomic status and all of the other things that we typically see correlate with political participation. So that, that's what we see in data. The logic behind that is actually quite clear when you step back and think about it for a minute. If I have already decided that my tap water is unreliable and I've decided to spend 200 times as much on a unit cost basis by buying bottles at Walmart, then I've already decided it is not worth my time to try to get government to do anything different. If I believe that government is fundamentally either incompetent or hostile to me and my kind, then it makes no sense at all for me to, per- to try to persuade government to do anything differently. If I believe that you are incompetent or evil, it doesn't make any sense for me to waste my time trying to convince you to do better because you're either incompetent or evil. So on the other hand, if I believe that you are basically competent or basically benevolent, then if I'm dissatisfied with my tap water or any other basic service, maybe it's worth my time to try to lobby you. So if, if you are my elected official, and I'm unhappy with my tap water quality, but I believe that you're basically a good person, I'm gonna go to you and say, look, I I, I think we need improved services. Uh, This is what I'd like to see. And I have a reasonable expectation that you will respond by improving my service. And in fact, that's what we see. In communities where where political participation is higher, we see higher water quality. And, And places where participation is lower, we see lower water quality. So there's this kind of vicious cycle that sets in, but can you also think of it as a virtuous cycle where people expect great things from government and government reciprocates by delivering good service, trust develops. That is getting back to that foundational qualities or properties or philosophy of government. Yeah, and um, I definitely want to get back to the virtuous cycle because um, I think, well, it's part of the book, but I think it's so important that 
as a um, a guide to government <laughs> on how to be better government and how to get more participation. But first of all, we have um, a caller on the line for you. Uh, Leo, you're on the air. Okay, yes. Both of you live in Madison, and Madison has lately been contaminated. Water has been contaminated with PFAS. Yes. And... I don't think the distillation will get the PFAS chemicals out of water. It may just go along with the water. So I don't think drinking distilled water is a solution to that. So my question to each of you is, since you live in Madison, do you drink the city of Madison tap water or do you drink uh, bottled water? Yeah, and that is actually a question that I put to you, uh, Manny, when we first met, uh, because I don't, I live not too far from the airport, and so I assume that there is PFAS in my water, and I think we also know that. I personally bought a, um, I didn't, again, install a whole system, but I bought a very high-level filter which um, I use to filter my water. I don't know how good it does for PFAS, but um, I did read the lab report that says that it filters more than 200 um, various uh, biological and chemical um, substances. And no, I don't use bottled water I, uh, well I do when I come to um, conferences in at UW for example and, and I always comment on that but um, yeah I generally as you saw uh, money I've been drinking water for my bottle during this time I have this bottle with me all the time um, and it's well, in this case, here it's filled with water that's filtered here in the station. What what do you do, and and um, what what do you think about all that? Sure. Well, I, I actually live in Middleton, so I'm, oh, I'm okay. next, ne- next door to Madison. But yeah. I work in Madison, so a good a good amount of the water that I consume happens on campus. Uh, so I very very much a, a Madison water utility consumer as well. I want I want to preface everything I'm saying. By, by emphasizing, I'm a professor of public affairs, I'm not a toxicologist, and I'm not an engineer. So I don't want anyone to take anything that I say as advice on how to treat your your uh, your water to, to make it healthy. That's that's outside my remit. And yeah, I don't wanna, thank you for that. <laughs> I don't want to get anyone in trouble. There are lots of great experts here at UW who, who know those things. I'm not one of them. Uh, ha- having said that, um, I, I will say this. The filtration technology, that's out there, uh, there is no conventional in-home filtration that addresses PFAS, to my knowledge. Uh, there are some technologies in development, uh, that, but if you buy a, a Brita filter or if you have one of the typical you know, home filtration systems in your refrigerator or on your sink, uh, on, your, on your, ki- your kitchen faucet, those are not designed for or tested to address PFAS. Uh, and I want to emphasize, I'm not an expert on PFAS and what, what the dangers are and what the concentrations are that are that become dangerous. They certainly are ubiquitous, like microplastics. They're everywhere. Um, how, how you address that, it, again, is beyond my remit. Personally, I drink tap water. I, I drink tap water filtered using you know a, a basic charcoal filter at home. Uh, but I do that mainly for aesthetic reasons. It, you know, the, the wa- source water in Madison, Middleton, and in actually most of Wisconsin is groundwater, which means uh, a lot of it has, uh, is hard. It's got, it's got a, lot of, um, a lot of mineral content, which can make it taste a little weird, especially if you brew coffee or tea, which is how a lot of my water gets consumed. Uh, I, I drink a lot of coffee. I drink a lot of tea. Uh, it, it tastes better when you filter it. And that's, that's why I do it. Um, so, so, so that's my behavior. Uh, I, I drink uh, filtered tap water here at the office. Um, you know, the, the caller though ra- raises a, an important behavioral question, and this is something I am more able to speak to. Historically, and by that I mean up to maybe five years ago, 
people used in-home filtration, when we study behavior, people used in-home filtration mainly for aesthetic reasons that like I just described, they wanted water that just tasted better. Hmm. What we're seeing is a shift where people are beginning to use in-home filtration, not just for aesthetics, but maybe because of concerns about quality as well, concerns about health as well. That's, that's a difference that we're just beginning to pick up in, in consumer behavior. If you look at data from five or six years ago, if people distrusted the health aspects of their water, they drank bottled water instead. They wouldn't use a filter to address those problems, uh, SD notwithstanding. But uh, today, I think people are more and more making that choice for health-related reasons. And it's, it's not entirely clear how much of that's driven by living near an airport and how much of that is driven by marketing, uh, by, by uh, companies that are trying to sell filters. But Manny, before we get back to the virtuous um, cycle, I just want to emphasize again and have you emphasize again that bottled water is most likely not any better, or, you know, commercial water, as you put it, not any better than what comes out of your tap. Yeah, Correct? for most of us, that's true. Uh, it's not any better, and it's possibly worse. Uh, and it adds plastic to our environment, and and even and only by that virtue, it is a bad thing to do. That's right. Yeah. What do, what what do we do about the UW that uh, you know instead of having like big filtered um, containers that we can get water from that provides bottled water. Right. Uh, it's funny. We we just had a welcome back uh, picnic for the La Follette School a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's a, always a nice event, but last year was the first one I attended as, as a new member of the faculty here, and I was mildly horrified to see bottled water uh, out on the table for our, our students and our faculty. Um, so this year, I asked that we remove the bottled water because right here in the La Follette School building, we have a filtered drinking uh, a bottle fill station you know, for, with, with drinking water. There are um, filtered water uh, uh, bottle fill stations all over campus. I'd like to see a lot more of them. Um, I would like to see filtered bottle fill stations everywhere across American cities. It should be easy for people to find bottle fill stations. I think that would go a long way to changing behavior with bottled water. And then the, by the same token, building confidence in the tap water system. You know, we, those, those bring their own problems. You got to maintain them. Um, if you're using a filter, and I, this is, I do know enough about toxicology to say this, if you're using a filter at home, you got to maintain the filter uh, because a, a filter that is that is saturated and uh, hasn't been properly maintained is actually worse than no filter at all because uh, all kinds of stuff can start growing in that filter. Um, so that, that that creates its own problems. But yeah, that's what I'd like to see happen at, at UW. I'd like to see uh, us increase our commitment to these bottle fill stations. And so students and faculty and staff and visitors are using a bottle, a refillable bottle, instead of a plastic bottle. Yeah. And so so we know that professors and others um, listen to the show. We also know that um, some uh, politicians do. And uh, we have very little time. We have a caller. I don't know that we have time to um, take the caller. But I do want you to talk about the virtual cycle because hopefully some politicians are listening right now. Yeah. Well, you know, ultimately, this is a hopeful book. I like to think uh, that it's a hopeful book. You know, uh, medical researchers are not paid to declare that a disease is incurable, and, and I don't think a social scientist should be should be paid to declare that social problems are insoluble. Uh, the virtuous cycle says, look, the basic principle of democracy is that governments gain and lose their legitimacy on their ability to provide for people's basic needs. You don't get any more basic than water. So if we get water right, if we get the other basics right, people will learn to trust. People are not crazy or stupid to distrust when they see failures, and they be, they are, are not stupid or, or crazy to, to begin trusting when they see a government succeeding. 
when they see government providing for uh, adequate and, and healthy and reliable uh, water and other basic services. You know, tap water, what's, what's different about tap water from other basic services, there are lots of basic services that governments provide for. But tap water is uniquely intimate. We're talking about a service that government provides and or regulates that flows directly into your home. It's a government service that we ingest. We cook with it, we immerse our children in it, we take it into our bodies. There are not many things that governments do or regulate that we take into our bodies. When tap water is excellent, that's going to engender trust. It's going to make us more willing uh, to participate in, in politics. And when tap water fails, it shouldn't surprise us that, that it shakes our faith, not just in what's flowing out of our tap, but in the entire institution of democracy itself. So the virtuous cycle says, get the basics right. People will begin to believe you, believe in you and what you do. And so if there are political leaders uh, listening to this, you know, the basics matter. We got to get it right. We, and th this is not a lefty issue or a righty issue. It's not an ideological issue. Tap water is essential and it's essential to everyone. Mm -hmm. And is Carl still online? Um... He is not, but um, he just had a comment that um, there's a type of reverse osmosis that may uh, be able to filtrate uh, PFAS, and that's the one uh, at the Willie Street Co-op that they use. I, I don't know if it was a comment or a question. Yeah, and I don't know, money that you have the expertise to answer it. I, I don't have the, the expertise. My understanding, though, is reverse osmosis is the best conventional technology for addressing PFAS. The trouble is it tends to be very expensive. And difficult to maintain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it costs, um, I think, 43 cents to the gallon um, at the co-op, which is one of the reasons I bought this um, fancy filter that hopefully <laughs> works on that. But I don't know that anyone is checking for PFAS yet. So um, anyway, there's a lot more to talk about, but um, we are out of time, so I want to thank our um, guest, uh, Professor Manuel Teodoro Mani. He's Associate Professor at the Robert M. Follett School of Public Affairs right here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He wrote this book together with Samantha Zulki and David Switzer, The Prophet of Distrust, Citizen Consumer Drinking Water and the Crisis of Confidence in American Government. Good to have you, Mani. Thank you. Thank you, Esti. It's been wonderful visiting with you. Thanks. And uh, thank you to Richelle for uh, being both the engineer and the producer today. And uh, we're certainly hoping to see Summer again next week. Again, uh, good wishes to Jill Ferguson, our guest from last week. I'm Esti Dinor. We'll be talking again next week. Bye-bye. Has never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision.